it's gonna be great. It's 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 gonna be it's gonna be really great. It's gonna be awful and enlightening and powerful. And powerful, yes. Yep. So prepare your butts. <laughs> Clenched. Clench. <laughs> Welcome to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. We are a horror and true crime podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. I am Alexandria Young-Ray, and my lovely co-host is Sunshine Bell Owen. Howdy! <laughs> Since all this talk um, about the basin, I had to I had to throw in that little bit of a redneck yeah, greeting. Yeah, that's what's yeah. up. No, it's important. Embrace, embrace that little bit of redneck. Yeah, it's fine. Although you're gonna want to reject it after today's story, I'm sure I will. I, I think there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it I reject already. A lot of it I reject it's already. It's fair. Yeah. Oh man, I'm having so many feelings. <laughs> share those feelings. I'm gonna share those feelings. I. That's why I started a podcast so I could do all of this research and then just vomit it into the world. Do you? Uh, how do you feel? That's. Uh... I mean, thus far, right, in our podcasting series, what do you think that the uh, long-term effect has been for you uh, hosting, you know, being this lead host and doing all this research? How do you think that uh, the new information you've kind of accumulated up in your dome is affecting you? Or, or I is it? I think I might be getting more crazy. Okay. Yeah. Luckily, a lot of this information is stuff that I already knew. Right. You're just getting a more in-depth understanding of it. I'm just, yeah, I'm just like digging deeper. A lot of this information, though. So I do not want anything to do with white supremacists. And so I have avoided it my whole life. And so a lot of this research was very new to me. So I'm, I'm feeling real crazy. Okay. <laughs> Stimulating some new nerves in your brain, huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh boy. So I want to I want to kind of like give some shout outs and also like cite sources at the same time. Okay. So I want to shout out Life After Hate cuz ultimately I want that to I mean, I'm going to have hard time not like just making fun of people and talking about what gigantic assholes these people are. But I also before you've, you know, murdered somebody, you've still got a chance to change your life. Mm-hmm. And Life After Hate is a program that's about leaving extremist groups. Um. But essentially, Life After Hate, if you know anybody that seems to be going down an extremist path, or if you feel like you're going down an extremist path, I find that unlikely since you're listening to this podcast. But if you are, uh, check them out. The The leader, the, the founder, uh, Tony McAleer, he is like capable. He's willing to talk. I've actually talked to him. Oh, cool. Twitter. Yeah. So if you need to reach out, reach out to them highly recommend highly recommend yes because that's that's the kind of thing that i want to i mean it 
I think I talked about that a little bit last time mm-hmm. or a, a couple episodes ago that like I, d- I do a lot of negative research and I talk about a lot of negative things, but ultimately I want to be a hopeful person. Right. So finding those kinds and of so, groups, I'm sure, is very helpful. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, stuff like Life After Hate, it kind of kind of gives me hope mm-hmm. after doing research on stuff like this. Well, um, also, the Southern Poverty Law Center is where I got pretty much all of my definitions. Mm-hmm. And then uh, basically this whole story I got from Parcast Assassinations. Because Parcast is the tits. Great. <laughs> And then a couple uh, of um, podcasts that I want to shout out. Bruh is a murder. Did I tell you about them? <laughs> you did tell me about them. They're so great. It's, uh, it's, I think it's now three people of color. They're, they're bringing a girl on to help them because the two guys are in the army. And so their schedules get a little fucky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they, they just brought a girl on. I haven't heard any episodes with her yet, but I think she's coming in soon. And all of their stuff is, you know, it's it's about people of color and it's about um, LGBT people. And it's, it's, we need so many more of these podcasts. Mm-hmm. It is exactly the kind of stuff that I want to see. And so, and also like, they're great. I talk to them sometimes and they're really fun. Nice. They're good. They're good. They're good folks. So... And then, did I tell you about Anyway, How's Your Sex Life? Uh, no, you did not. So, they're a horror and true crime, or, yeah, yeah, paranormal and true crime podcast. Okay. And they're also in Utah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, which is, which is something that got me kind of excited, but, um, they're, they're very queer oriented, because, like, one of the co-hosts is, is gay, Mm -hmm. and one of them is bi. Um, and they're just fun. And they're cute. Nice. So... Sends my shout outs. Kind of want to get that out on the top to bring a little bit of like light. Yeah. Before we go into the deep, dark depths of the darkness. Do we want to plug uh, Megan and Colin's podcast? Oh, yeah. I, Our friend. Did, uh, did you listen to it? I listened to it the other day. I haven't listened to it yet. I've it was been, really like, great. St- like doing research, like my notes yeah. in the book, but. Remedial Sex Ed. Remedial yeah. Sex Ed. I'm so excited for them. Yeah, so our friends, um, Megan, Colin, and... Marcella. Marcella. (laughs) Uh, I know her name. I suck. Uh, They started a podcast called Remedial Sex Ed for uh, adults who got bad sex ed, which was all of us. Yep, all of us, at least in Utah. And, you know, they do cover in the... I I listened to the first episode. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but they do kind of cover how... That's not necessarily just a Utah problem. It's a national problem. It really is. And I thought it was really great. It was uh, both mentally stimulating and it was, it felt like important, but lighthearted. And I think it would definitely be a uh, worthwhile podcast to check out uh, after listening to this episode, if it feels a little bit heavy and you want to hear really (laughs) pleasant people talk about boning down. Yeah. It's a nice, it's a nice diversion, I think. Yeah, because you're going to need a palate cleanser after this. Right, I agree. perfect palate cleanser, yes. <laughs> and palate cleanse with sex. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound... Because that's not weird. That does not sound refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you ready for the deep, dark darkness? I'm always ready for the darkness, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> nice.
All right. So we're today we're talking about the order and the murder of Allenberg. So let's start with who's Allenberg. Who is Allenberg? Who's our guy? So Allenberg is important because he was a rude liberal talk show radio host. I mean, the picture you have he, of him is perfect. He even has that sassy finger up. Oh, he's so perfect. And he's got a cigarette. Yeah, cigarette in one hand, sassy finger in the other hand. He mm-hmm. And his glasses are even slid down on his nose. He looks like he is telling somebody off as this picture yeah. is being taken. I like that you slid your glasses down. Your uh, I mean, you that. know, our listeners couldn't see, but you could, so... I could. I, I will inform our listeners that Sunshine has done the Allenberg face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a just a sassy, rude, liberal, I mean, R- Rush Limbaugh, but liberal. Right, okay. You know? And so his story is, his story is actually kind of a fun story. I, his death is really tragic to me because he seems like the kind of person that I would love to love. Okay. You know? Yeah. So he was born January 1st, 1934 in Chicago, Illinois. Mm -hmm. He was raised primarily in a Jewish neighborhood, but he frequently had disagreements with his father over hiding their Jewish heritage. Okay. His father was a dentist in a Gentile neighborhood. Oh. Yeah. So that, at a young age, he kind of developed this, like, I mean, your Jewish identity is part of your identity if you're Jewish, but, like, it became a very, very important part of his life. Well, I can see, too, especially considering the time at which he was born, and then if his father is actively, if his father is actively kind of uh, hiding, uh, hiding their, uh, their heritage... Because he thinks it will get them judged, and it probably would. I mean, that's the thing. Is that honestly? Yeah. I mean, who that, can you blame? That is person. probably what you would need to do if you wanted to be successful in that time and place, which is unfortunate, but it's true. And so I could see how that would make somebody who maybe might not have necessarily been inclined to be very identified with their culture to, to you know, to yeah. make them sort of, especially in the '30s and '40s. Right. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah, and so, like, I 100% don't blame Alan Berg for, you know, being like, hey, don't hide our culture, like, don't be a fucking wuss, like, stand up for, for being Jewish, and maybe these people will start accepting you for who you are. And I also can't blame his father for being like, yo, there's Nazis, real Nazis. Yeah, World War Two. that's a thing, like. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd rather, I'd rather not be Jewish than be, al- and be alive. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... So that's kind of like his his foundation. That's where he starts. Berg went to law school. Yay, lawyers! And he was a sporadic student. He moved to several states. Like, he transferred Mm -hmm. back and forth. He once even married a classmate and then had it annulled a month later. Okay. So he was just a wacky dude. A little bit unpredictable, it sounds like. A little unpredictable. But he still managed to graduate at 23. Oh, well, good for him. Yeah, no, he fucking nailed it. Even though he's a fucking wild ass student, he's like, I graduated, I was 25, close to 26. I didn't get barred until I was 26. He graduated at 23? Fuck yeah, bro. Yeah. And I went, you know, I went straight from college to college to to law school. You were on top of it. Like, you were dedicated. That was what you were doing with your life. You weren't, like, dicking around. So, you know, so, so Berg's like, hmm. (laughs) (laughs) so he he had a successful law career he was a defense attorney and he represented members of the mafia okay and sex workers great 
So cool motherfucker. I just like this guy so much. Anyway, so in 1966, things go downhill. Okay. He he has an undiagnosed brain tumor. Oh, shit. That leads to recurring grand mal seizures. Mm. And he self-medicates with alcoholism. Yep, okay. So his wife, Judith, convinces him to move to Denver, Denver Colorado, which is her home state, to seek rehab. Okay. And uh, he gets sober, and he stays sober for the rest of his life, which is pretty fucking cool. Yeah, good job. And also, um, they do find the tumor and remove it. Oh, nice. So, so shit's, shit's okay again. But they decide to stay in Colorado, and Allen Berg decides to give up his law career. Because that shit, stressful. Right. As was my, as before he even said that, I was like, well, yeah, I bet that was stressful as hell. Like, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that it was not solely the uh, grand mal seizures that led to the alcoholism. I'm sure the self-medicating also had a lot to do with how stressful his job was. Yeah. I mean, lawyers have, I think, the highest alcoholism rates of any profession. I completely believe so, that. Yeah. 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 We, we, uh. Like to pretend that we're not sad by being drunk. Hmm. <laughs> Which, yeah. like, you know, yeah. fair. Not not yeah. healthy, but fair. <laughs> so, you know what he does instead? He gets a job as a shoe salesman. Great. Because reasons. I, I really thought you were going to say, like, what he did instead of uh, alcohol. And I was going to be like, uh, marijuana? Cigarettes and coffee. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, he, he gets a job as a shoe salesman. Perfect. Um, which actually works for him because he's got, you know, kind of a, that magnanimous personality. Mm-hmm. Such a good personality, in fact, that in 1971, Berg meets talk show radio host Lawrence Gross. Mr. Gross. Mr. Gross. And Gross was so charmed by Berg's personality that he asked him uh, to be a guest on a show. Oh, cool. So, Berg's 37, he has no radio experience, but he was a natural. So, Gross keeps inviting him back. And then, within the year, Gross relocates to San Diego, and Berg became the natural choice to fill his slot. Awesome. So, so that's how he got on the radio. You know, nice little, little life, quick, quick life story. Um, Berg didn't have his sassy air presence until 1977, though. Took him a while to, like, ramp up to yeah. it. So, so that's, like, six years of not sassing. Okay, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good run. <laughs> yeah. Especially for lawyers um, who tend to be very outspoken. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> But, um, so in 1977, he transferred to a new network and took over the slot of a popular music show. Mm -hmm. So people would call in to complain about the lack of music and he would dismiss them with insults. Beautiful. And the ruder he got, the more people would listen. Of course. I mean, obviously. So that's where, yeah, that's where the sassy, rude personality comes from. Right. I really, I, I really love the way you phrase it in your outline here. Got famous for being a sassy asshat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes sense, of course. Yeah. I mean, see also our conservative talk show radio host. Right, exactly. Like, I really do see him as liberal Rush Limbaugh. Right. Well, I think everybody, if it's somebody whose opinion you can easily side with, 
the idea of them, you know, telling it like it is and being a little insulting and being funny and, and being witty and all of those things, but, uh, under a premise that you agree with, I, of course, that's, that's what every, everyone loves that. Who, who doesn't love your viewpoint being presented with, uh, comedy and flair and really effectively shutting down the opposing view. Like that's what everyone wants. But also at the same time, he uh, he wouldn't go easy on his guests regardless of their political ideals. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So he was equal you know, opportunity he was, sass. Like, liberal sassy, but yeah, it was equal opportunity sass. Perfect. He would he would question you in a probably rude way, no matter what you believe. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> that definitely sounds like something um, I would like to listen to. Right? God, I love this guy. I. I'm so saddened by this story, but apparently people who knew him in real life said that he was actually very soft-spoken and respectful. Right, kind of like he had his radio persona and then his real, mm-hmm. uh, uh, whatever, real day-to-day kind of in mentality. Personal, yeah. I just, like, I would have loved to meet him. Mm-hmm. So, so his first big scary was in 1979 in November... Uh, Fred Wilkins, the head of Denver's chapter of the KKK, called in to Alan Berg's show. And Berg did his thing. He cut him off. He insulted him. And I think he even told Wilkins, like, come on down to the studio. You know? Yeah. And a week later, Wilkins did just that. Uh Uh-oh. And he brought a studio in, and he threatened Berg live on air. Of course he did. So... I'm actually not sure how that situation got, like, resolved, but Berg made it out unharmed, and the charters were eventually dropped after a settlement was made with Berg. Okay. So, question mark? But but that's his first time, like, being a Jew, being... Standing up to American... Well, I mean, he's always... Yeah, he's always, like, stood up to anti-Semites, but, like... He was physically threatened. Right. By That's what I meant. More so very, very directly, very immediately, yeah. very uh, clear. And on air. Yeah. Just wild. And he doesn't stop. Oh, of course he not. He keeps going. Because it's him. So, you know, that's 1979. In So February 23rd, 1981, Berg transfers to the largest local radio station, KOA. His show ran from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. every day. It reached 38 states and had over 200,000 listeners daily. Wow. So he was doing good. Clearly. Right on Berg. Yeah. And of course, his biggest trigger was anti-Semitism. Right. Well, that would make perfect sense based on the backstory you've given me. Yes. Oh, also, uh, just like a funny little, like, cute charming thing about Alan Berg that kind of makes him an asshat but also makes me love him mm-hmm. more. So food and drink was banned in the recording booth. Oh, I see. Because reasons. Because <laughs> that's not a good idea. So you see in that <laughs> you see in that picture of him there's like a coffee mug and he's smoking mm-hmm. a cigarette. So he would smoke cigarettes and drink coffee in the recording booth anyway. Of course he would. He spilled coffee and ruined so many mics that the studio ended up suspending his mic from the ceiling so he wouldn't ruin any more equipment. Oh, that's so funny. Which you could also see in that picture. It is a suspended yep. mic. That's great. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I love it so much. I'm 
like, oh my god, Berg would have been the bane of my existence and I would have loved him for it. <laughs> Probably his big outstanding not great. He was not a faithful husband. Mm, that's a pretty big not great. It's a, it's a not great. So him and his wife had separated and gotten back together multiple times. At the time of his death, Alan and Judith were attempting to reconcile, but were divorced. Okay. <sighs> so that's Alan Berg. That's our, that's our sweet baby. He's not a baby. He's actually a little bit old. He might not have been alive now. Even No, he's that. older than my, gra- he would be older than my grandfather yeah. if he was alive. Yeah. So, but I mean, maybe I could have met him in the nineties. I don't know. Yeah. Early two thousands, you know. Or at least he could have been around. I don't know. He's a cool dude. And I like him a lot. And I am trageded. Trageded? Sure. My my brain just turned off. Just fizzled out. It was all of the, it was all of the neo-Nazis just broke me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm finally gone. Is that what happens? Is that how neo-Nazi spreads? <laughs> yep. Like you just hear enough. I smell burnt toast, sunshine. You hear enough rhetoric <laughs> that all of a sudden your brain turns to jelly and you're like, huh. I don't know how to words. And then the next step is... I don't know how to words. Or anything. <laughs> maybe maybe white people are the master race. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's the next step, Alex. Be careful. <laughs> I might have to... Uh, I don't think I'm going to cut that out. But like, just know that that can be soundbited someday. Yeah, that could easily be used <laughs> against me. Yeah. So just don't run for president. Okay, deal. That's fine. <laughs> Okay, so let's take a big right turn. All right. Or left turn. It's a left turn. Um, we're going to pause for some... Isn't it a hard right turn? Never mind. Oh. Let's take a big alt right turn. (laughs) 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 That's so bad. No, it was good. It was good. (laughs) Okay. We know what the Ku Klux Klan Mm -hmm. is, but quick background... They started during the Reconstruction um, at the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. They became known for flamboyance, I would say. For showmanship. Showmanship, yes. Um, we don't want to offend them. Like the, the leader leader is the Imperial Wizard. He's, oh, really? I thought it was the Grand, Grand Wizard, yeah. but Imperial Wizard is even better. Grand Wizard is one of, I think, the leader of the local chapter. Okay, the Imperial There's Wizard. There's also is Exalted the... Cyclops. What? That's one of the tiers. What is what are the responsibilities They're of the exalted just the cyclops? Biggest nerds. They sound like oh, it. God. Like I did not realize. You know, I mean, I think that uh, understanding the Ku Klux Klan is something that I've kind of just like avoided because why would I want to know more about hate groups? Which I think mm-hmm. yeah, is both justifiable. Is what and, I'm going through right yeah, now. Yeah, it's both justifiable <laughs> and not right. Like you need to understand something in order to counter it, but at the same time, like yes, why would I need more? But uh, what was it, Master Cyclops? What uh, exalted, exalted cyclops. cyclops? Like what the fuck is that? That's I kind think, of amazing. That's I think that's a recruiter. Exalted. I'm not cyclops. sure. There's also like knights. All right. I just okay. Great. Yeah. yeah just, wow. Just big, big nerds. Big, big old racist um, nerds. Got it. Oh, yeah. Also, they became known for extreme violence and inflicting terror. Right. Terrorism. So, you know, lynchings, tar and feathering, Ugh. rapes, cross burnings, all of that super awful shit. Their numbers have waxed and waned. You know, they, they increased in the 20s. 
they increased after the civil rights movement. I was going to say my assumption would be that their numbers would increase any time that there's an economic downturn or a major stride forward as far as civil rights amendments are concerned. Yes, that one. Apparently, Obama was a uh, great recruitment tool for them. Okay, that makes sense. Just having a black president. Right, that makes sense. Well, and, you know, again, I don't really necessarily want to play devil's advocate for these people, but I guess an uneducated white populace would be more susceptible to bigotry when they're experiencing more poverty and when yeah. disenfranchised classes in the media are appearing to get some sort of benefit or a boon at that same time. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I brought up Life After Hate. And that's one of the reasons that I, like, looked into Life After mm-hmm. Hate. I mean, it's like we've been talking about in every episode that we've done. You can't just look at people as if they're monsters. Yeah. They're very three-dimensional. Everything is complicated. That's something that I've seen a lot of actually uh, living out here where, you know, fortunately for me, it just means uh, clicking a button and choosing to unfollow or unfriend somebody on Facebook. But it's been really interesting the number of times that... um, I have connected with people at work who, in the context of working with troubled children of, you know, I mean, we don't have a ton of diversity, but of multiple ethnicities, these people have demonstrated themselves to be kind and to be empathetic and to be caring and to be understanding. And then uh, I see examples of their beliefs on social media, which, you know, granted, sometimes people are just resharing memes and things like that. But there was one particular instance of the woman who... I, I genuinely liked and um, mm-hmm. was was happy to see her at work and stuff. And then I started to see during the election and, and after the election, I started to see a lot more really questionable stuff from her. And the straw that broke the camel's back was uh, that post, that copy and paste post that was going around about uh, basically using the metaphor of a exterminator or um the the exterminator and the raccoons thing about how like if you build a fence around your yard or if if you have if you come home from vacation and your house is infested with raccoons uh you hire a professional to come and and build a fence and do these things and get rid of the raccoons and stuff and drawing a very poor very clearly racist analogy between you know vermin getting into your home and immigration issues and at at that point that's where i was and and that's happened with several people where i see that and i go oh and it's just so and that's really difficult for me because i think that that kind Mm -hmm. of i want to be understanding and open to those are the same people who post things like you know i don't unfriend people for being liberal i have my beliefs you have yours Mm -hmm. blah blah blah. it's like okay it's hard to have an argument where one side is saying i would like the right to live and exist peacefully and the other side is saying i would like the right to destroy you or i would like the right to so thoroughly disenfranchise you that said they think that it's the other way around yeah right exactly the the victimization the self-victimization that occurs in white communities and granted these are they're poor white communities these people Mm -hmm. the people that i have interacted with who feel this way are not upper class like they are people who are being actively disenfranchised by the policies that they're voting for right there's a clear issue of economics there's a clear issue of education but it's still so hard 
I don't want to be that person who shuts down lines of communication between me and an individual because of their beliefs. But once it reaches the point when they're clearly being racist and and delusional, it's like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I can have a conversation with you if you have disagreements with me on, like, tax issues or gun control, but not on whether or not a person is worthy of being considered a person. Yeah. It's a lot harder. But, I mean, that said, like... I, I want us to take, like, we are. We are taking a hard anti-racist stance. We are taking a hard, we do not refer to human beings Right, drawing the comparison to human. human beings seeking asylum and vermin. Or just human beings in general, regardless of whether or not they're seeking asylum or yeah. just want to work and live in peace in a country that is supposedly the melting pot of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I mean, that said, I also, I understand that being poor is also a disenfranchised state. It is. It's And, and when you are poor and you are given an opportunity to scapegoat mm-hmm. something that is so much easier than the people that you are working for and the yeah. people that you can't take down, it's so much easier to right. be like, oh, it's the blacks, I think, it's the Jews, it's the Mexicans. Well, and... I think it's complex in a different way. It's, well, it's complex in a different way for white people because I think that we're culturally so indoctrinated. Yeah. There is so much white privilege and we're so indoctrinated to think that we're in charge and this is our country. It's everything, all the trickle down from manifest destiny, right? All of that is something that people yeah. carry around. And so I think that when you're not, every white person thinks they can be a millionaire. And I think when there's not, there's so much internalized just failure, because of this delusion that like somehow yeah. we are this chosen master race, then yeah, it's like not even it's not even something that people can comprehend to think that maybe it's this system run by rich, actually truly rich white men that is the source of your disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I mean that's a thing that my dad talks about a lot is like the reason that your poor whites don't want to take down your rich whites is because they would like to someday be the right. rich Right, and whites. I think that they labor, I think that uh, a lot of people, I, I, I think that they just labor under the delusion that that's possible because of the mm-hmm. pervasive cultural myth of Manifest Destiny. Like every, yeah. you know, it's it's like poor people voting for Trump think, and, and, and his crazy tax laws when, when they're signing up oh, for man. their own... Ass fucking. <laughs> like. Yeah. That was graphic. I apologize. I, because I hate myself, went on a Ku Klux Klan official website. Uh, and oh dear, Alex, how FAQ. could you? Okay. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was an experience that I experienced. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and. I get afraid to poke around on Reddit too long. Like, that's impressive. I I hurt myself so bad doing this research. (laughs) My brain is so broken. I hope you had, like, so many really nice, like, I hope you have a... I just... What my my hope for you, Alex, is that when you're doing this research, that you have a nice selection, canned, bottled, whatever, a nice selection of wine... (laughs) And a, a lovely assortment of aromatic bath bombs so that you can just go and really fem it up with some A-plus top-shelf self-care after these disgusting rabbit holes. Yeah. Well, and also to make it even worse, this last week and a half, I watched two 
separate individuals attempt suicide at the parking garage ac- across from my work. Oh. So this... I'm fucking batshit crazy right now, you guys. <laughs> so much darkness. Oh, so much darkness. I am swimming in it. Anyway, I went on a KKK official website and browsed through their FAQ. And in the same paragraph, they talked about how much they hated the communist Marxists and Mm -hmm. how much they hated the greedy bankers. As if the greedy bankers were the communist Marxists. Uh, okay. They also then proceeded to talk about how they were pro-social services, just only for white people. Okay. My brain did so many loops that it tied itself in a knot. See, and this is again what I'm talking about with the education issue, right? When you're poor, you're uneducated because, what is it? Oh, property tax. Property tax pays Mm -hmm. for your schools. schools. Yeah, exactly. So when you're poor, you are literally dumber well, maybe not dumber, but you're you're less educated. You have less access to more. Yeah, information. you have less access. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I shouldn't say this. Yeah. Sorry, guys. We I were both raised just, poor. PSA: I was raised super poor. So, like, if I say anything stupid, that's why. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't don't internalize classism yourself. <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> but just I think when you're when you're intelligent enough to read and understand complex ideas but haven't actually been educated with any real substantial amount of reading or introduction to complex ideas, then you become this adult and you become frustrated with your situation and you start seeking out answers. And then you find these answers that are totally batshit. And because you don't understand the core concepts that they're referencing, all of a sudden that shit makes sense to you. Like, if you don't know what Marxism is versus socialism versus communism and understand the basics of our fucked up banking system, then, you know, I I guess that one could read that and go, oh, yeah, that's why my life sucks. Yeah. Well, and also, like, it seemed a little bit like they almost understood the concept and and were using incorrect buzzwords as place fillers. Right. You know, so, like, they understood... A little bit. The problem of classism. Right. Or they just use a variety of logical fallacies to make the things that they say that are true suit their ludicrous belief system. Yeah. So, KKK. Oh, yeah. So their numbers have waxed and waned. We we got to that. They claimed their highest official membership in the 80s. But yeah, so the KKK has always been, you know, primarily anti-Black, anti-Semitic. They've mm-hmm. also been anti-LGBT and until very recently anti-Catholic. So very wasp. Yes. Yes. Okay. This is like a big thing is like Protestant Christian. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically because until very recently Catholics were considered a different kind of race to be discriminated against, which is how we got like the Irish and Italian mafia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I I, I was assumed that the... Uh... Irish and uh, well the Irish for sure I just assumed was just racism I didn't think it had anything to do with them being Catholic I thought it was just like you know a result of the immigration from a potato famine and anytime we have immigrants there's racism uh I didn't necessarily also true I don't I definitely don't have a very thorough understanding of the uh bigotry and division between Protestants and Catholics yes that is a huge one in fact it's it's still fairly present in Europe. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, see also Irish English. Right. That's basically what that was over, was Catholic so, Protestant. So, I mean, would, would it be safe to say then that the division is kind of also class class oriented? Like Catholics are going to be like the more lower class immigrants. It's a immigrant. little bit class oriented. It's also just sort of dumb religious fighting. Okay. You know, kind of like how we hate Muslims for some reason. Right, yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just, my God's better than your God. My God's going to beat your God I up. guess... I guess I always just tend to assume that there is something more going on in any kind of religious bigotry or religious uh, superiority. I I just always feel like it's somebody at the top using my God this, your God that to manipulate the people at the bottom for purposes that really don't have anything to do with the religion. So I always feel like there are uh, extenuating political or economic factors that play into ideological conflicts. I imagine it's a little bit all of the above. Because we, me and you are not the best to talk about like religious persecution just because Mm -hmm. neither of us are religious. And so we don't understand why you would feel the need to shit on another religion because yours is right. Right. Because for yeah. us, we're like, you're all full of shit. Go away. <laughs> right. Or even like, it's all semi true and semi not true. Shut the fuck right. up. Right. I think that. Anything. Uh, yeah, that's. I think that's more as I can't understand the compulsion to even have that discussion with with people who are not like you know your friends and family. As far as like the idea of yeah the idea that you would even bother with what other people believe in the first place is kind of foreign to me yeah it's complicated because i don't understand faith really but right i don't understand fa- those... I... sorry oh I, I don't understand it as a concept i i understand theoretically mm-hmm. how big of a role it can play in somebody's life but i really don't have a empathetic understanding of how it can affect your decision-making and the way you really live your life. Also, it feels simultaneously completely immutable and completely chosen. Yes. So for that reason as well, I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on, we've got neo-Nazis, which are different from the KKK. Okay. In what regard? So neo-Nazis specifically idolize Hitler and Nazi Germany. Okay. So they, they're they known for their extreme hatred of Jews as well as people of color, queers, rebellious women. Think Rebellious women. Yeah. Ooh. Think everybody who holds the signs outside the pride parade. Yeah. <laughs> Just the list of, of the stuff on that sign. Right. God hates, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they specifically hate the Jews. Now... Okay. The reason neo-Nazis are technically distinct from the KKK is because the KKK may or may not be into the idea of genocide. Now, technically, their discrimination encourages violence, Uh but... But neo-Nazis are expressly down with genocide. Neo-Nazis, whereas the KKK because they idolize Hitler and Nazi Germany, they are all about genocide. Okay. Yeah. White nationalism. Okay. So this is where I, it gets complicated. 
It already got complicated. But yeah, it it's already getting there. It's getting worse. Okay. It, it gets worse. But wait, there's more. <laughs> so, so this gr- group is simultaneously very old and very new. Okay. It is essentially the idea of making a nation just for white people in the U.S., Okay. The the U is now is this the idea of like like making a nation within or the idea that the US should be a nation by and for white people? It is it is both. It is one or the other and both. Okay. Which is simultaneously like which is already a logical fallacy because we are living on stolen land. But that's side the point. Right. So it's an entirely different issue. Yeah. So they idealize pre sixties America. You know, that perfect 1950s America, white picket fence, white family, right. nuclear family, the man goes to work, the woman stays home. The there ideal that even then probably wasn't functioning children. that well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and basically, it's because in 1964, there was the Civil Rights Act. And in 1965, mm-hmm. there was the Immigration and Nationality Act. Okay. Alt-right is is also like tied into this so like richard spencer are these folks and richard spencer has such a punchable face such a punchable face anyway (laughs) um so they they pride themselves on respectability politics and like intelligence a lot of these guys have degrees like phds masters like they always wear suits see also richard spencer he has a master's which disappoints me so goddamn much because if you're going to be smart, don't be a bigot about it. But smart people sometimes like using pseudoscience to prove their bigotries. Right. When you're smart enough to... Twist the rules. Yeah. To, again, to use those logical fallacies to be yeah. like, no, no, no. I swear I'm correct. Yeah. Like, um, there's this one guy. I think his name is Jared Taylor. He thinks that he's not racist because even though he thinks that white people are smarter than pretty much all the other races, he also thinks that Asian people are smarter than white people. Okay. That's not being racist at all then. So clearly he's just acknowledging it the way it is, even though he's really just buying into stereotypes. Right. Because stereotypes are, are, are proven fact. That's why they call them stereotypes. Uh, to tie this into something completely unrelated, but I think to help serves the point is this, the cult of nutritionism, right? How, uh, no matter what diet you look up or what, you know, lifestyle trend or whatever it is, there is a study that either directly or indirectly supports whatever somebody is marketing at you mm-hmm. that, that to find, you know, correlative data is, I mean, you know, cor- Something can add up on paper. It's so easy to find correlative data to support almost any claim Mm -hmm. because correlative data just has to correlate. And again, when people don't have a basic understanding of of concepts like that, it's really, really easy to construct something that seems like it is supported with facts and studies and research when in reality it's not. Yeah. So I, I, I feel like that kind of... Relates to this whole... Also, it's like picking and choosing data. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. And I feel like that like kind of... Like if all of your black subjects are like inner city kids from poor neighborhoods that go to schools that are completely underfunded. And all of your white subjects are like private school kids that are have personal tutors. Of course, right. the white kids do better on tests. 
Right. Exactly. Well, it's exa- well. So there's not only the issue of picking and choosing data, but then there's also the issue of the and this is I know this has been a problem is the way that studies, especially studies of on on a social level, are constructed. Mm-hmm. The way you set up your experiment influences the outcome, which exactly. is exactly what you were talking about. So um, I think that, that just, I guess, to me, that seemed relevant to bring up in the fact that you were talking about the white nationalists uh, mm-hmm. idolizing, uh, what would you call it, class and intelligence and, yeah. and uh, education. Where it's They're like, very well, classist. I think we tend to think that if you are educated, that's going to be the antidote mm-hmm. to bigotry. But I think, I guess, if your bigotry is deeply enough ingrained, uh, education just becomes another tool. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess that's one of the things that just, it, it it feels so tragic to me because, like, I'm a very It's upsetting. Big, yeah. I'm a huge fan of education. I'm a really big fan of, like, if you learn enough, you'll get closer to the truth. Mm-hmm. And you'll get closer to understanding others. And And hopefully that'll make the world a better place overall. Right. I always, my perspective was always very similar, a little bit different, but very similar, which was that I would hope that the more educated, my, my perspective has always been the more educated you become, the more you realize you don't know. Exactly. The that more you well. realize you don't understand and the more you're forced to have an open mind about uh, a variety of people and situations. Like the more you're trying to always pursue knowledge, not pursue being correct. Yeah. And I, I definitely simultaneously exist in both of those fields. Yeah, because the more I learn, the more I know I don't know. But right. I also hope that I am getting closer to something that resembles the truth. One can hope. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's there. There's there's two branches of white nationalism, and they are both pretty dangerous in like the big picture. Okay. So there's mainstreaming, which it involves it involves people who want to kind of soften their more extreme beliefs in order to appear more palatable to normal folks. Right, like, I'm not racist, I just want to live in a nice white neighborhood. Yeah, and even like, you know, oh, I don't want to, like, kill all of the non-whites. I just, it's it's the people that say there's nothing wrong with being proud of your white heritage. Right, and the benign neglect of people who are less fortunate than you. And just and just completely ignoring all of the bad things about your white heritage. Right. I don't want to kill the immigrants, but I don't really want to help immigrant women and children either. And that's okay, because this is my country, not theirs. And also, I don't give a fuck where they go, they just can't stay here. But, like, I mean, basically... If you say there's nothing wrong with being proud of your heritage and you just stop there, technically you're not wrong. It's just that there's all of the stuff that you're not saying involved in that. The difference is being proud of your heritage versus being proud of your white heritage. Right. Because that's that's different. Being white is not a nationality. It's not. Be- it's and not. that's so when you're when you're white when you're proud of your white heritage. There's a whole other parcel of meanings that that takes on versus like, I would say I have a moderate amount of pride in like my French heritage and in my uh, cultural like kind of cowboy heritage, right? Mm -hmm. Because I have concrete things that were passed down from my family that like I am proud of and I know are a result of that heritage. And yes, 
those heritages are predominantly white. Like I have no reason to think I have anything other than, you know, generation after generation of white uh, blood in my veins. But that is still not the same thing. Yeah. I can be proud of my heritage as it happens to be white, but I cannot be proud of my white heritage. It's yeah. a totally different issue. Yeah. It's it's like being proud of your white heritage is being proud of killing natives in droves. Right. Again, it's that whole manifest destiny. I am yeah. white. Therefore, and like, I am I'm the chosen. Not, I'm not proud of the English in me or whatever the fuck else I have. I don't know. But... I, I do have, like, an identity to the weird, I guess, Mormon ethnicity that is my right. family. Right, well, I think that's the difference, too, in having pride in your uh, ethnicity versus your cultural heritage, right? And I think that for people who are, again, from a disenfranchised class, who... It's kind of like that pushback that we were talking about with Berg, where he was proud of his ethnicity... Mm-hmm. But it seemed like, based on what you were describing, at least part of that was because he was encouraged to not be proud of his ethnicity in specific. Right. Right? When your ethnicity in specific is a source of torment for you culturally or a source of shame or a source of hate, then it makes sense to counter that with pride in your race. And I I think what happened is basically... The, the white people who are saying it's okay to be proud of your whiteness, I think somebody once told them, you're white, you don't get an opinion. And they took that to mean, like, my identity is under attack. Mm-hmm. My identity is invalid. Even though they completely don't understand where you're white, you don't get a, an opinion came from. <laughs> right. Oh my god, we really tangented. Yeah, sorry. It's okay. Oh, two branches of white supremacy. Nope. Two branches of white nationalism. Yep. Okay. So mainstreaming. I kind of already went over that. It was... Mm -hmm. It's the softening their more extreme beliefs. Yeah. To appear more palatable. That way they can recruit more people. Mm -hmm. And that way they can infiltrate high-profile political and social circles. Mm -hmm. Vanguardism is essentially the opposite. They believe the only way to achieve this whites-only utopia is by encouraging violent revolution. Okay. And so they overtly encourage polarizing politics. Okay. And and you can kind of see this with the, like, anti-PC culture alt-writers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's kind of what they're doing, is they are intentionally being rude. They're intentionally being divisive. They're intentionally being mm-hmm. offensive. So that they can further this chaos brewing. Yeah. And I, I think that's the reason that white nationalism is so is so particularly dangerous to me, is mm-hmm. is it doesn't come from a place of 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 misunderstanding and and um and unawares of other cultures because they just haven't been exposed to them and an unawares of other people because they just haven't been exposed mm-hmm. to them. It is a pseudo-intellectual and very purposeful movement. Right. And that's why I think it's so dangerous. Because I feel like you can reason with somebody who just doesn't know any better. 
but it's way harder to reason with somebody who should know better and willfully refuses to. Right, and is intelligent enough to argue the point, but also very, very attached, not just mentally, but emotionally, or I should Mm -hmm. say psychologically, to their viewpoint. Yeah. So... So yeah, I personally find white nationalism to be super scary and uh, keep your eyes out. Okay, so two more two more definitions. One's like a half definition. Okay. Christian identity. So this one's a weird one. This okay. one is a new religion that bases beliefs on an apocalyptic prophecy that the end times are coming. Okay. Because of the conspiracy that all Western governments are secretly controlled by a Jewish cabal. So... We're in the end times because all Western governments are secretly run by Jews? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, God. It's shortened to Zog. It's called... It's the Zionist Occupation Government. Okay. Yeah. So Zionists are Jewish? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It gets complicated. It gets weird. So Christian identity hit its height in the 80s and 90s. Okay. Um, Most of its, like, prominent leaders and creators have died. Okay, good. So so it's not as around as it was before, Mm -hmm. but, like, parts of it are still around. And also it is so goddamn important to this story and the bigger story that we're going to tell over this series. Um, And then Aryan Nations is a branch of Christian identity. That is specifically a terrorist compound based in Idaho. Okay. That was formed in 1970. Great. So. Ooh. So that's our that's our definitions. Okay. Let's get back to the story. Yay! Robert Matthews is upsettingly attractive. <laughs> I did notice this one picture with him and his dog. He's pretty buff. I'm so mad. <laughs> upsettingly attractive he's Jesus. like like the other the other two dudes that are part of the story are like that yucky white dude look oh yeah mm-hmm. but like uh-huh. robert matthews it. is actually kind of a hottie and it makes me so angry you know bad people should be ugly on the outside i know that's exactly it and this guy was so fucking ugly on the inside Ugh. so tell me about it okay so robert matthews is basically like the leader he okay. was born January 16th, 1953 in Texas. He was the youngest of three boys, which kind of has that its own implications. If you're just in a family of men. Yeah. You have a tendency to kind of just naturally adopt more like misogynist beliefs. Yeah, I can see that. Right. So his family moved to a, to Arizona and at age 11, he joined the John Birch society, which is a radical right wing society. 11 that's super formative like i'm so fucking young to be an angry like right winger yeah you should be caring about gi joes not getting rid of the jews it makes sense that i mean that's a that's probably i'm sure they wish they could get everyone to join that young because that's really a great as far as blindly you know you're believing what adults say that forms your worldview You know, you're going to be diehard if you're yeah. if you're joining up at 11 years old. This dude was diehard. Literally. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> um, so he was also baptized Mormon in high school. Okay. Weird Mormon sex come up like once or twice in, in this overall story. It's kind of, it's kind of right. odd. Right. It makes sense for his, you know, relatively I guess peaceful. new religions and like. Well, and I just think too, you know, Mormonism is, is I, I'd say that's a pretty palatable religion for 
Protestant white supremacist, really. Because the most radical thing that Mormons did was have multiple wives. And really, like, what misogynist is going to have a big problem with that? (laughs) Yeah. Also, Mormons believe that uh, modern prophets can still, you know, be around. They literally believe that there are still modern prophets. So it lends itself well to cult sects and cults. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of subcults that were Mormon. And it's because, no, no, I'm the prophet. Right. You know? And, it, and yeah, so it does lend itself that are like that. thirty people large, right? They're still cults. I've heard a lot of Mormon cults, right? And then a lot of, I mean, even if you think of really small, like just the again living out in rural Utah, where there's uh, definitely polygamists. Uh, you run into them at the grocery <laughs> yeah. store quite often. Uh, my understanding is that uh, simply the head of a, you know, just a polygamous household, the the head uh, can be seen as a prophet, and that's frequently the mm-hmm. case where. You know, it's it doesn't even have to be, uh, you know, actual factual cult, but simply the fact that, you know, the patriarch of a family could claim to receive prophecy. I mean, that lends it. You're right. It lends itself really, really well to cultish behavior. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, living in Utah, I definitely don't want to say that all Mormons are cultists because literally like probably at least 10 percent of our listeners are our friends who are Mormons. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I'm definitely not making that claim either. But that being said, because of the Mormon belief that, like, you can have modern prophets, that lends itself to culty subgroups. Right. It makes it really easy for people to bastardize and say, okay, well, I'm FLDS or I'm this or... Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure that, especially because we're from Utah, throughout this podcast, we will tell more stories where tiny little mini Mormon cults pop right. up. Right. And then I would also say, too, uh, I think I keep on bringing up Manifest Destiny, but I think that's a really big thing, especially as far as uh, race is concerned. And even if you look back as far as the Civil War, like, it, it was opening up the West for settlement was literally a strategic move in dealing with uh, the Civil War and race issues. Yeah. And so I think that s- since then, the West has been a really uh, ripe setting for, uh, you know, white supremacist racial issues yeah. of, of any variety. And so and then and then add to it the fact that you have, you know, the whole the whole Mormon story is is being persecuted in the East and moving West. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I would just say the West in general, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, California. Um, I think that. It's just the per it. It makes sense that whether it's because of the way Mormon beliefs lend themselves to be altered for cultism, or whether it's the, this is a perfect melting pot for mm-hmm. alternative or new religions and white supremacy. Yeah, well, and like to kind of tie that back into this story, you'll find that a lot of the like white supremacist compounds exist in. Washington, Idaho, Montana. Like, well, we also literally have the space. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's you know. You know, go west and form your little white utopia. Right, exactly. That's yeah. what people do. So, so that's, that's a thing. Um, Matthews formed the Sons of Liberty, which is a Mormon survivalist militia group that was aimed okay. at anti-communism. Great. All right. Which is a thing. 
And I didn't realize being militantly anti-communist was ever necessary in the continental oh, United States. It, it, sure, <laughs> it sure is when you're these guys. I mean, also consider like the Cold War. Right. Got to protect rural Arizona from the commies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also see, like, my weird experience with reading the KKK website. Yeah. Where they literally called bankers communists. Right, right. It's like, no, that is exactly the opposite of what a bank is. All of the misinformation. But, um, you know, it's the it's the easy buzzword to be against, even if you don't technically understand what it is. Yeah. Um, at some point, he has a son question mark i don't know where the son comes from but i know that he gets married after he has the son okay in 1976 because she can't have children but she does adopt the son okay and matthews being a white supremacist believes that it is his duty to father more white children right again fits in well with certain mormons oh my god yeah yeah so he gets himself a side bitch yeah uh, he gets himself a, a mistress, Zilla Craig, who he will eventually have a daughter with. Okay. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Fuck. Well, even just again, <laughs> even just polygamous culture in general, like yeah. uh, our listeners might that. our listeners might not know this yet. Uh, I had a brief experience as a child uh, living in a polygamist household because of somebody my mother was seeing, and uh, he was a adopted child from the um big water utah polygamist cult uh led by alex joseph who was a predominant uh oh dear oh dear what's the word uh libertarian Uh. anyway uh even not being they they did not consider themselves to be a religious sect Mm -hmm. but they did have some very culty behaviors uh you know had a patriarch that they sort of deified all the stuff anyway I'll, i'll get to the point he my mom's, I guess, boyfriend inherited <laughs> his uh, his father's youngest wife, who um, can oh actually who can actually be seen on a sixty minute special uh, about Alex Joseph. Uh, I believe it came out in the early nineties. Uh, she was just barely like eighteen when Alex Joseph married her, and he died before he could impregnate her. And so, as his oldest son, who who was adopted, but he was still his oldest son. Uh, Trace uh, inherited her, mm-hmm. and she. This was this was it's when very Old Testament. This was when, as a child, I, I and I don't know. What, this is when, as a child, I realized kind of that something was really wrong, and that I didn't understand what was going on. And I overheard uh, this eighteen-year-old girl picking a fight with my mother over, and this is, I think, when my mom realized what was going on as well. Um, uh. Because she knew he came from a polygamous family and everything, but to her understanding, you know, he, he was, was a contract. He was a contractor in Park City. There was no, yeah, he he reported himself as somebody who did not live in that culture. Anyway, yeah, I, I overhear a fight where my where this eighteen year old girl, this teenager, is yelling at my mom about why why 
her boyfriend only sleeps in her room and why she isn't pregnant yet. And my point is I'm drawing this back to the duty of uh, Of, any kind of of fundamentalist belief system. The, yeah, the duty of, you know, it doesn't matter. The the patriarch of the family needs to reproduce. It doesn't matter whose vagina the baby comes out of, but he has a duty to reproduce. Right. Well, and having big families is important to even mainstream Mormons. Yeah. Yeah. Not inherently, but it's very common. And again, these people were not religious. They did not have any Mormon or claim to have any LDS, FLDS affiliations. They were polygamous. Oh, you should. The 60 Minutes special is way interesting. That's amazing. I mean, I knew I knew that you had polygamists in your childhood. I just didn't know that part of the story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Polygamous libertarians. It's it's a very interesting (laughs) phenomenon. Good, 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 good. Yeah. Good. Love it. Culty stuff. Yeah. We were talking. I'm sorry. We were talking about... uh, Zilla oh, Craig, his so side Zilla hustle. Side, yeah. Side missioners. Um, so that's that's kind of his background. Also, Matthews read the Turner Diaries and got real inspired by it. Pause for the Turner Diaries. What so, is this? So pause for this fucking book. Oh, boy. So this is this is the thing that made me have to go to bed last night. I, I finished, like, I didn't even read the book. God willing, I never have to read this book. Okay. I just read the Wikipedia plot summary, and I felt sick to my stomach. Okay. So it was published in 1978 by William Luther Pierce mm-hmm. under the pseudonym Andrew McDonald. And okay. it tells the super fucking racist story of guerrilla warfare mm-hmm. and the order, which ultimately takes down the Jewish-controlled world government. Okay. And so this is a, fict- kills- is a very racist fictional story. Yes. Okay. And eventually, they literally kill all of the non-whites and the race traitors. So whites who aren't racist. Yes. Okay. Which is, I mean, like, I think that's probably one of the other reasons that I'm, like, really uncomfortable with white supremacists. Is that if I were to go undercover, I would do fine going and being in a white supremacist compound. Mm Mm-hmm. But everything that I am is what they hate because I'm queer, I'm rebellious, and I'm part of a interracial family. Right. Yeah. When it's it's a uniquely scary thing as a white person to be afraid of other white people for hating you for not being white enough. uh, Yeah, your white privilege is not enough to keep you alive when it comes to white supremacists, which I think is probably... An extremely, it's an extremely, extremely, extremely far cry from the fear that people of color experience. But it's probably the closest we'll ever get to that is the recognition that if you have any empathy whatsoever for people of color in their situation, you are also now a target. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I'm not just a target for being empathetic. I'm a target because I will not disown my father and my biracial brother Mm -hmm. and my race traitor mother. Yeah. So Bruce Pierce would probably not like you very much. No, no, he would not. So that's that's our that's our pause for the Turner Diaries. It's it's guerrilla warfare organized under the order Mm -hmm. is the name of the, the group. And it's just fucking racist garbage and it is literally the manuscript for white terrorism yes inspired the order oh my god it did yeah it fuck fuck this guy fuck william luther pierce fuck him okay 
Anyway, so moving on, Bruce Pierce. So he was born May 14th, 1954 in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. He was a big fan of the great outdoors. Of course. Months before graduating high school, he dropped out to marry his pregnant girlfriend. Okay. Then they moved to Atlanta. Sex education probably would have been super helpful for them. Probably. But, you know, condoms are forbidden by the Jeebus. Mm-hmm. So, so they were divorced in 1981, and Pierce moved to, to Montana because great outdoors. Mm-hmm. Then Pierce gets remarried to a woman named Julie, and okay. they have a second child. About a year after he moves to Montana, Pierce meets Mike Butler, who invites the couple to Bible study for Christian identity. Mmm, great. Yay. So This is why Julie, you don't go to church activities. Don't go to church activities. <laughs> they might be an evil cult. So Julie, his new wife, claimed to have had a prophetic dream that God told her that they were on the right path to preserving the white race. Oh. Yeah. Oh, dear so Julie. within the year, this is 1983 now, uh, they moved to Idaho to get more involved in white supremacy and Christian identity. Okay. And this is where he meets 30-year-old Robert Matthews and 44-year-old David Lane, both members of the Neo-Nazi National Alliance. Great! So, David Lane. He's born November 2nd, 1938 in Iowa. His father died when he was four, and he was adopted by a traveling Lutheran minister. Lane was one of those weird kids that was obsessed with Hitler. Okay. He always wanted to, like, play a Nazi when playing games with other kids. Weird. So it was just there. Right, there from the beginning. Which, yeah. I mean, like, obviously, probably that traveling minister had something to do with it. There was something there, but right, also like... he was a weird kid obsessed with Hitler. Yeah. So the family eventually settles in Colorado. And Lane's first job out of high school was as a real estate broker, where he was literally fired for refusing to sell houses to black clients. Good. You should be fired for such things. Right? <laughs> but also, like, that racism, it's just ever-present. Well, actually, I did. So I, I just a brief aside that totally won't take for, forever and relates. Uh, <laughs> I watched an Adam Burns Everything, and it was about inherent racism in the housing market and how... Oh, For a yeah. long time, not only was it legal and permissible, but it was uh, standard practice. Like there were there were rules about who you could sell homes to in certain neighborhoods. It was perfectly allowable for developments to have policies of you may not, you know, no, you can't be black and buy a home here and all those, you know. It was really interesting how it affected, and it was government uh, sanctioned. Right, it was government sanctioned. So it was government-sanctioned racism as far as, I don't care how good your credit is, how much money you have, etc. You may not buy a home here. It was uh, government-sponsored racial segregation along the lines of homeownership. And well, that's how you got the slums in L.A. That's actually what I was about to say. That's how you got the slums everywhere. It was really interesting is they were only, you know, it became this negative cycle of like, nope, you can only live here, you can only live here. And then those communities would get further disenfranchised and it would just become this vicious cycle. And yeah. And the freeways would, get, you know, roads would get diverted and bypasses would be built through the black neighborhoods because of racism, which would then make their neighborhood poor, which would then make the people poor, which would then make them more disenfranchised and create ghettos and just, you know, uh, racial. But white genocide is real. Yeah. 
Definitely. Oh my god. So yeah, the housing market has an effect on race, that's all I'm gonna say. Oh yeah. Everything <laughs> has an effect on everything. Yeah. It's complicated. It's so complicated. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So between 1978 and 1983, Lane joined several racist organizations, including the KKK, Christian Identity, Aryan Nations, which is how he meets Robert Matthews and Bruce Pierce. Uh, I guess one. So one could be a member of all of those groups and not really have any conflict, huh? Yeah. Because why not? Yeah. All of those distinct definitions were not mutually exclusive. They just weren't technically mutually inclusive. Right. They're not necessarily the same thing, but nobody's going to have a problem with you in the KKK if you're also having a member of the Christian identity and Aryan nations. Yep. Like, yes, you extra white. Get it. Yep. 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 <laughs> so let's get to the formation of the order. Yes, let's. Or Bruderschwigen, which is German for the silent brotherhood. Okay. So Robert Matthews, big nerd inspired by Turner Diaries. So he decides he wants to make a similar group and name it the exact same thing because he wants to throw over the U.S. government, which is also the Jewish cabal, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Can you tell I'm getting a little bit sick of Nazis? <laughs> yes, I can tell. And, you know, we just barely, this has only just begun. I mean. We are halfway through. <laughs> the eye rolls. Oh. Yeah. I feel like I don't need to be like that sympathetic with these guys. No, you they don't. Because they're overtly a terrorist organization. Right. Yeah. Overtly yeah. terrorist organizations do not deserve sympathy. This is true. Yeah. So September 9th, 1983, Robert Matthews invites some Christian identity friends over for a dinner party. After dinner, nine men, including Matthews, Lane and Pierce, go outside to discuss Matthews' plan. So there's six steps. Mm -hmm. One, form a group. Six men. Bam. Two, set goals. Already did that. Bam. Three, finance, which they bet based on the Turner Diaries, so mm -hmm. counterfeiting and stealing. Okay. Four, recruit more members. Five, assassinate prominent enemies. Six, uh -oh. raise an army to overthrow the U.S. government. Just I feel escalates like, real quick. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like they probably got to step five. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Clever girl. <laughs> so the men are to swear an oath. And in order to swear an oath, they need a white baby to represent the future of the white race. They, they, they don't... The white babies lives, right? The, 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 yeah, because the future of the white race. Okay, yeah, okay, that They'd makes sense. they kill a black baby. They wouldn't kill a white baby. Right, duh. I'm getting my... You know, anytime there's a baby involved in oaths, I'm just like, oh. So yeah, luckily, Kenneth Loff had a six-week-old daughter. Perfect. So he runs and grabs his daughter. They put her on a blanket, surrounded it with lit candles, and swear an oath of loyalty over her. Like a bunch of terrifying nerds! Like a bunch of terrifying... It's interesting, too, that whole... Just how... How overtly pagan white people... Act, like, just... <laughs> It's not a very Christian I'm so thing to surprised do. Surprised by the satanic panic when that's, I hear stories like right, this. Right, that's exactly what I mean. I guess that's what I'm getting at. I shouldn't have said pagan. I should just it's it's yeah. It's just <laughs> how overtly so you've got an overtly Christian thing that is actually murdering people. Right, while and how real overtly... satanists are like, yeah, man, let's all live in peace and harmony. Well, and then also, I guess even the even the more just situational irony of <laughs> people identifying as Christian nationalists. Swearing and swearing an oath over a baby surrounded by candles—that is some pagan shit. That is some it not is. at all Christian shit. Yeah, yeah. 
So step steps one and two are done. Now to finance. So, step three, profit. Step three, profit. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> so, so David Lane was put in charge of counterfeiting. And he had no experience. So the money was not done good. <laughs> the shade of green was wrong. Okay. It was, it was bad money. So they still tried to pass it off as real. Mm-hmm. The plan was to split up and spend the money in like small bits at different stores and break the bills down into real money. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So which buy a stick how, of gum with a hundred dollar bill, get change. Yeah. That's how you poorly you do counterfeiting. Counterfeit. Yeah. That's how you really poorly, poorly launder money and counterfeit. I mean, he, f- he fucked it bad. Everybody really screwed the pooch in this one. So Pierce gets caught because the money sucked. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want to implicate the other order members, so he just stays mum. And he's sentenced to two years, but he asks the judge for some time to get his affairs in orders. I believe that this happened in December. And they gave they give him until April 24th. He spends his free months attempting to learn how to make bombs using Aryan Nations manuals. Great. Because it is actually a terrorist compound. <laughs> You know, I think, again, this speaks to just systemic racism that he can get. Who gets them? I mean, I don't know. You're a lawyer. Maybe you would know. But is that really a thing? Like people getting time to get their affairs in order? And I just feel like. I mean, it, I mean, it technically is a thing. But I just it feel probably like, wouldn't have been given to a black man. Yeah. Right. You're given too much credit if like. And I guess, again, if he doesn't implicate the rest of the people, then how technically is the legal system to know that he's a member of a hate group, et cetera, et cetera. But I just feel like... They suspected, and that's actually the reason he got such a harsh sentence. Right. So what's, I mean, what's falling through the cracks here if you're giving somebody who might go home and try and build hella bombs the time to do so before putting them in jail? (laughs) That's all I'm thinking. What was I saying? Sorry, we were talking about bombs. Yes. Oh, yeah. So he he's learning how to make bombs. He doesn't turn himself in. Of course not. Officially becomes a fugitive. Mm-hmm. On April 29th, which is five days after he was supposed to surrender, he's on a trip to get weapons with some other order members, and he decides to take a detour to a synagogue in Boise, Idaho. Mm-mm. He finds a, a crawl space that's accessible from the outside. He crawls in and puts a bomb in. He sets the timer for 30 minutes and pieces out. The what? bomb exploded, but it did minor damage. Good. And Matthews is pissed. Because only not did minor only did damage. he not approve the bombing, mm-hmm. but it also was a total failure. Okay. Plus, Pierce had recently gotten in trouble for the counterfeit money, so he's on thin ice. Right. So he's worried. Not only not only did he break rank. You're a liability. Right. Not only did he break yeah. rank, but he's a liability. Yeah. Okay. So, step four, recruitment. <laughs> uh, recruitment's pretty mediocre. Their highest numbers uh, at 22 members. Okay. Matthews gives a copy of the Turner Diaries to each new member because he's a horrible nerd. Yes. Bad nerd, not good nerd. So a lot of the new members were actually really uncomfortable with the whole murder thing. Mm-hmm. So Matthews assures them that they've abandoned that particular ideal. Okay. So let's move on to murdering people. <laughs> So they have a top three of, of people that, you know, they're interested in. They've got Norman Lear, who's a TV producer. He produced All in the Family. Mm-hmm. 
which was a show that portrayed, a, you know, this bigot as this loudmouthed idiot, but it also covered, like, a bunch of difficult topics in a super progressive light. Mm-hmm. So it had sexually empowered women and black characters that were good human beings. So, of course, that guy has to go. Yeah. But he lives in L.A., which is kind of far, and so they, you know, whatever, let's not do him. Second target, Morris Dees. He's the founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Dees was a super high-profile guy, Mm -hmm. and he regularly traveled with bodyguards. Okay. So they opted not to go with Dees. Third Mm. dude, Alan Berg. Not Alan. Alan. Let's go to May 27th, 1984. Okay. This is the order's first murder, and it was one of their own. Come again? So Walter West was part of the order. Mm-hmm. He had tried to pass counterfeit money on to his ex-wife without Matthew's permission. Okay. And probably partially because of his power trip with Pierce, Matthews was like, nah, brah, not having it. Right, another breaking rank issue. Yeah. Randy Dewey took West on a drive to a remote location. West was suspicious and insisted on carrying his rifle on his lap throughout the drive. Matthews and the or- and the other order members were waiting at the remote location. Actually, probably not the other order members, but several others. Because mm-hmm. um, there were quite a few order members that were not down with murder. Someone came up behind West and hit him over the head with a sledgehammer. Damn. But it didn't kill him. Oh. So Dewey takes West's rifle the one that he had been carrying Mm -hmm. on his lap and shoots him in the forehead, finally killing him. So that's their first murder. (sighs) Turning on yourselves, right? That's a bad way to start your cult, man. It's not a, it's not a great way. So back to Ellenberg. It's 1983. David Lane is working as a security guard for the Primrose and Cattlemen's Gazette, a racist newspaper. Mm Mm-hmm. He had even published an article in it called The Death of the White Race. Great. Okay. Yeah, super. So June 15th, 1983, the owner of the newspaper, Roderick Elliott, who was a Holocaust denier, because that's common in these these scenes, was invited on Berg's show, but it didn't go well because Berg did his thing and advertisers pulled out. And Lane lost his job only a month after getting it. Because advertisers were pulling out of the newspaper and the mm-hmm. newspaper went bust. So they okay. had to lay people off. Yep. Ooh. Bad things happen when white men lose their job. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> white men are dangerous. I feel like we need to include that, that thing from Pocahontas. <laughs> These white men are dangerous. <laughs> oh. <laughs> because... Oh, man. More accurate has never been. <laughs> Jeez. All right. So so I think it was the same day. Lane called into Berg's show mm-hmm. um, and had his roommate record the call. Okay. Because he wanted to prove the international Jewish conspiracy. Okay. So he listed several Jewish world leaders as proof. Mm-hmm. And Berg actually admitted that he didn't know all of the people listed were Jewish. Uh-huh. But then Len- Lane hung up. Okay, so that was it. He was just like, here's a bunch of Jews who run things. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. So, so he <laughs> thought he'd, like, won. He thought he proved Berg was, like, a fucking idiot and a fraud. And, like, he, pr- like, owned, pwned those liberals. Right. Ugh. And he would go on to play that tape to friends and family. Oh, God. Yeah. 
super. Mm. Mm. Yep. So that's so that's like Berg's strike one is is something that David Lane is literally involved in, which is probably how Alan Berg got on the, you know, yeah. in the first place. So January 1984, Berg invites Pete Peters, a Christian identity minister. Okay. And uh, Pete Peters comes on with the Bible, ready to, you know, argue theology. Mm -hmm. And Berg tells him that you are not going to read the Bible on my show. Great. Now, Lane, Matthews, and Zilla Craig had all attended Peters' church. Okay. So it is likely... So they were extra offended by that. Yeah. So it sounds like to me that he ended up on... He possibly ended up on the list... Almost just because of Lane's sort of personal vendetta against him, seeing yeah. him as the person who is responsible for him losing his job. And then to top it all off, uh, their minister ends up on his show and he's like, mm-hmm. nah, you're not reading the Bible on my show, which would definitely yeah. offend some Christian nationalist sensibilities, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, and then like third strike, February 1984, he invites Colonel Jack Moore, who is a avid white supremacist, mm-hmm. on for the sole purpose of embarrassing him. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, no, it really does seem like Berg became a target because of Lane's personal vendetta. Yeah, okay. And because, you know, all Jews are technically involved in the Jewish conspiracy. Right, so if you have a personal issue with one, it's probably justifiable because of the larger issues to go after them. Well, because they're clearly involved. Right. So it's not just about you, it's about the rest of the white Christian nation. I think that's what they believe. (laughs) That's why, you know, that, that, sure. It makes sense in a way that doesn't make any sense. Right, that's, that's, yeah, that's perfect way to say it. I, for for every, oh, excuse me, for everything that we've discussed thus far, I can see that making sense to them. Yeah. So, so they've picked Berg as their target. Mm -hmm. They used uh, Zilla's mom, Jean Craig, to tail Berg and scout his locations. You know, common restaurants, mm-hmm. where he works, where he lives. Because Jean Craig was also in on this whole, we gotta save the white race Yeah, thing. well, I mean, she raised a white supremacist son, so... Uh. Daughter. Oh, daughter, I apologize. Zilla. Zilla, yes. Which is Matthew's girlfriend. Oh, yes, okay. Yes. So Pierce fought for the right to pull the trigger. Mm. He wanted to be the one that started the race war. Okay. He wanted to be the shot heard around the world. Yes. Mm. Uh, Matthew's not particularly keen, but eventually he relents. And Lane was chosen as the getaway driver. So June 18th, 1984. Bruce Pierce, David Lane, Robert Matthews, Mm. and a fourth guy, Richard Scutari... Uh, checked into a multi motel six near Denver. They bring machine guns. Mm. Berg's day started out pretty normal. He did his morning show on a recent Catholic church sex scandal. Like you do. Cause he liked stirring it up. <laughs> and after his show, he talked with his producers about the topic of his next show, gun control. Uh. Cause he liked stirring it up. <laughs> I just love a good pot stir. Uh, that evening, he went to dinner with ex-wife Judith. Because they were trying to rekindle. Mm-hmm. 
So David Lane drove. Robert Matthews was riding shotgun and Bruce Pierce was in the back to Allen Berg's home. He wasn't there. He was at dinner with Judith. So they found a free parking spot in front of his place. Berg finished up dinner with Judith and she was going to come in to make a few phone calls, Mm -hmm. but she decided she was tired and would rather just go home. Mm -hmm. So Berg actually pulled into his driveway Mm -hmm. and then pulled back out to give Judith a ride back to her car. Oh dear, that's so funny. So the assassins were just sitting there like, what the fuck? (laughs) Then Berg comes back a couple minutes later. Lane pulls up next to him. Berg gets out of his car. He's carrying some groceries, lit cigarette. Matthews gets out of the car, opens the door for Pierce. Pierce exits, goes up to Berg, opens fire. Mm. Berg dies instantly. Yeah, well, point blank range, I would assume, with a machine gun. With a machine gun? Yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. So upsetting. So Pierce was fucking stoked. He jumps back in the car, Lane speeds off, and they were gone. Into the night. Because who the fuck are these guys? Yeah. So Berg's neighbor, Susan Allen, was doing laundry. She lived in the same apartment apartment mm-hmm. building. At 9.21 p.m., Allen hears gunshots and runs back into her bedroom. Mm-hmm. After not hearing anymore, she leaves her bedroom to call boyfriend Charlie McDowell. He comes over and finds Allen Berg lying on the driveway, spilled groceries, and a still lit cigarette beside him. Mm-hmm. He calls 911 at 938, and the police arrive at 940. Berg was already dead. Yeah. So because of the brutality of the murder, and because of Berg's reputation, and because of the fact that they could tell the shots were fired from a machine gun, investigators quickly were like, okay, this was probably a right-wing terrorist group. Right. So investigators uh, actually pretty quickly identified David Lane as, like, potentially involved, Mm -hmm. but they couldn't locate him. And this became national news, which was basically the first Americans had heard of militant white supremacist groups. Matthews and Pierce go back to Washington, Mm -hmm. and Lane goes to Philadelphia to lay low. And they all brag about the murder, even though they agreed not to. Yeah, okay, of course. Yeah. The Order had committed a few robberies before this, but on July 19th, 1984, so a month later, the Order stages the largest armored car robbery to date in U.S. history. Oh, wow. So Matthews got antsy to get the job done quickly, you know, in out. Mm -hmm. And in his rush, he left his gun at the scene. His gun, he had purchased legally under his own name, so the police were able to Uh, trace it right back to him. That's some top brass there. Now, because of the issues with Matthews and Pierce over Pierce's previous mistakes, getting caught with the counterfeiting and botching the bombings. Does Matthews kill Pierce? No. Pierce gets all uppity about it, and it kind of starts a division within the orders. Okay, good. So Pierce goes to Matthews and suggests splitting the group. So you've already got, like, an undercurrent of not great. Mm -hmm. Back in Philadelphia, Lane brags to Order member Thomas Martinez. So Martinez had turned to white supremacy after a friend of his was murdered by a black Mm -hmm. man. In 1984, he was considering trying to get out of the Order, but he feared violence. Right. He's like, if I try and leave, they'll hurt me. Probably rightfully so. Right. 
Yeah. So Lane gave Martinez a ton of counterfeit money. They'd actually, since, you know, Lane's experience, gotten an experienced counterfeiter. Mm -hmm. And he gave him like 30 grand. Okay. And he told him to spend the money in other states to avoid getting caught. But Martinez was a super, super smart fella. And he bought lottery tickets at local convenience stores and used the money at local banks. Ugh. So homie got caught. He hadn't said anything about the order because <clears throat> something, something violence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the day before his trial was supposed to start, they informed him that they had subpoenaed his phone records mm -hmm. and they knew he had associated with some high profile armored vehicle rubbers. So it was starting to seem exceedingly unlikely that he would receive a light sentence. Right. So the day of his trial or the day his trial was supposed to start, I think it was October 1st, 1984. He told his lawyer he wants to talk to the prosecutor. And he says, I know who killed Ellen Berg, and I'm willing to talk for a lightning sentence. So back to Matthews. Zilla Craig, mistress, mm -hmm. gave birth to a daughter while they were hiding from the law. Okay. It was a home birth. Matthews went back and forth between taking care of Zilla and running into town for supplies. Mm -hmm. One of his outings, he noticed he was being watched. So he told Scylla that he had to leave because the Zionist conspiracy was following mm -hmm. him. It was the FBI. Um, it was the FBI. <laughs> it wasn't the Jews. So 16 hours after his daughter is born, he leaves out the back door, mm. never to see his daughter again. Hopefully for the best. Hopefully for the best. But yeah, he, he pieces out. Martinez, back to Martinez. Mm -hmm. Martinez, having flipped on the order, was working as an informant. So he worked out to meet up with Matthews in late November in Portland, I think. Matthews tells Martinez that their next target was Morris Dees. Okay. So Martinez informs the FBI. The FBI comes into like where the, the, the motel where they're staying and Matthews has a short shootout with him, then jumps a fence and hitches a ride to a safe house in Whidbey Island. So he gets away. Which is, yeah. So he just zoops away. He's now in Washington on Whidbey Island. He gets the remaining order members together. Some some members just wanted to turn themselves in, but Matthews would rather die. Yeah. Which we are all aware mm -hmm. of. So December 3rd, an anonymous order member calls the FBI on the Whidbey Island safe house. Pierce, Lane, and a few other members leave. Matthews and a few dedicated followers stay. The FBI surrounds the house, and order members peacefully turn themselves in until only Matthews remains. So they fire tear gas, and nobody comes out. So they go mm -hmm. in, and Matthews fires on them. So they retreat. So then they fire flares hoping a fire would force Matthews out. It did not. The house catches and burns all the way down, and Matthews doesn't leave. Damn. They found his charred corpse in the bathroom. He died from burns and smoke inhalation. Of course he did. Yeah. So, he meant what he said, and I believe that was December 8th, 1984. And didn't we have that picture? Did that picture get posted mm -hmm. on Instagram? That was that picture. Okay. Yep. 
That was that was the teaser. Yeah. <sighs> it, is it? No, no, never mind. What? I just I, I just wonder if it's it's morbid to suggest that a fire in which a white supremacist dies could be at all like extra warming. Uh, warms your heart. I mean, Jen. <laughs> uh, I mean, somebody like what, like Robert Matthews, yeah. like a literal terrorist murderer. Mm-hmm. Not like, yeah. My heart is warmed. Nice and toasty. <laughs> nice and toasty. They roast marshmallows. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with the leader of the order dead the order starts turning in on itself. Of course. Like, I mean, it was already doing that before, really, but... Yeah, but it, like, really, really does it. I mean, basically, they're not scared of Matthews anymore, and there's no central leadership. Yeah. So they start testifying against each other, leading law enforcement to other order members still at large. And that's kind of how the order gets caught. Mm-hmm. In 1985 to 1988 multiple agencies worked together in operation clean sweep Mm -hmm. specifically targeting hate groups okay um they arrested about a thousand people now not all people were charged with anything but it was effective right ish no there's some pros and cons we'll we'll get right into it so so there's three trials of note There's the RICO trials, the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Mm -hmm. So racketeering. Mm -hmm. Ten members of the order were tried and sentenced to, including Richard Scutari. Good. So he was the fourth guy that was at that motel. In a separate trial, three members of the order were tried and convicted for violating Allen Berg's civil rights. No one was charged officially for Allenberg's murder. Why? I think they just didn't have... Enough evidence to charge anybody with murder, even though he was clearly murdered? Now, his murderers, like, got prison time or were killed in a fucking flaming shootout with the FBI. Mm -hmm. But the fact that no one was charged still rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. So... Then there's this third trial, the sedition trials. And this one's a little bit of a big deal. This is in 1987, and it's kind of the culmination of Operation Clean Sweep. Fourteen white supremacists were charged with sedition, conspiracy, and civil rights violations. So this is kind of one of those complicated things because the First Amendment really protects your right to free speech and religion. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of obvious violations like conspiracy that is literally just planning a crime yeah so technically the government is infringing on your rights to free speech when they charge you with conspiracy okay because you're planning a crime that's nullified the government's allowed to charge right so sedition is a weird one it is speech that is likely to cause violence and it is very hard to prove right I can see, because how do you prove what something is likely to do? Yeah. Oh, also, um, five of the 14 white supremacists that were charged mm-hmm. were order members. Okay. One was William Luther Pierce, the writer of the goddamn fucking Turner Diaries. Yes. Except 
13 of the 14 white supremacists were acquitted, and the final one had charges dropped for lack of evidence. So, not actually a win. a notorious failure. Great. Because basically they just went in for too much, and they spread themselves too thin, Mm -hmm. and your First Amendment rights are really, really protected. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, but also... Fuck. What? Yeah, what that allowed to happen in this context is super yeah. shitty. Yeah, because the Turner Diaries are is like literally an evil book. Yeah, it is a manuscript for violence against against humans. Yeah, it's not just non-white people. It is also white people that happen to not hate non-white people. Yeah, it's it, it's evil. It is actually evil, but its right to exist is protected by the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got nothing. Yeah, you know? what are you supposed to say about that? It's just a shit. It's just shitty. And, like, a lot of white supremacists maintain their their websites mm-hmm. through U.S. servers and then, like, recruit members in Europe mm-hmm. through that because Europe, most European countries, have laws that forbid hate speech like that. Okay. And vice versa, a lot of European white supremacists hosts their servers, hosts their websites on U.S. servers. Oh, really? Because That's upsetting. the U.S. protects hate speech. It's, That's upsetting. It's like, it's just so complicated. Yeah. It's just because, so, like, I don't want to limit freedom of speech. I think freedom of speech is one of the most important liberties right. that Americans it's have. It's just really unfortunate but that... this is such a horrible outcome. Right, that our freedom of speech is getting co-opted and bastardized into... Uh, for somehow now being a safe haven for people who want to host uh, hate hate groups, hate group websites. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's horrible. <sighs> so David Lane and Bruce Pierce, they're the final murderers who are left mm-hmm. alive. David Lane, the getaway uh-huh. driver, he got 190 years for those first two cases. Okay, great. Yeah. So he died in prison in 2007. Fuck him. Bruce Pierce got 252 no. years for the first two cases. All right. He died in, t- in prison in 2010. So fuck him. I have an icky thing to end this oh, with. Oh, no. All right. So Lane, that... That, that poet, that author, he continues to write, write in prison. The, I would argue, the biggest contribution that he made to white supremacy while in prison was he wrote the 14 words. Okay. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. Now, have you ever heard the hate symbol 1488? Uh, no. 1488 is a standard neo-Nazi hate symbol. Okay. 14 is those 14 words. Okay. 88 is the eighth level of the letter of the alphabet. Mm-hmm. Stands for Hail Hitler. 1488. Oh, God. Lane wrote the 14 words that is now used as a neo-Nazi symbol oh. in prison. I don't like that. I... It, uh, so yeah, that's why this whole thing made me feel dirty because this is all neo-Nazi martyrs and just continuation of shit. It's just, and like, yeah, they got arrested, but like, it just wasn't satisfying and the sedition trials didn't go anywhere and they got them through racketeering and violation of civil rights is cool and all, but like, 
nobody actually got charged with Allen Berg's murder. Right, which is really upsetting. And just, and now Matthews is a martyr. Yeah, making a martyr out of just, white supremacist leaders is something you never want to happen. No. It's just awful. Yeah, it's a whole lot of ick that... Uh, it's just a whole lot of And ick. I think that part, when we talked about doing, you know, this, this particular series, uh, as soon as you brought it up, I was like, yes, that's a great idea. And we both agreed part of the reason why it was such a good idea is because of the current social and political climate that we're in. But I also think that that's part of what makes it uh, even more upsetting and even more terrifying is yeah. uh, not even that long ago, you know, you and I could talk about uh, white supremacists and hate groups and, you know, silly neo-Nazis. And and it was kind of something to laugh at and to make fun of because, yeah. oh, stupid white supremacists, you know, because they weren't. They, they were they were ramping up to be a threat. They were not a threat. They were. I feel like at a t- at a time not that long. Maybe this is just me, but I feel like at a time not that long ago, uh, how kind of silly they were was seen as more commonplace. Yeah. It was like, duh, that's stupid. Like, obviously the KKK is ridiculous. Obviously neo Nazis are ridiculous. Like, you know, no, there was no real reason to take them seriously. And then over the last, I don't know, maybe ten years. And maybe it's just as my awareness has changed, but uh, it's become this thing where it's like, no, that shit is scary and that's a real threat. And uh, how how unfortunate is that? <laughs> I mean, I remember when um, Inglorious Bastards mm-hmm. came out being like, okay, we get it. Nazis are bad. Move on. Right. Ha ha. Nazis. And then like right after that, we started getting like marches in the streets by neo-nazis and i was like never mind bring it back nazis yeah, are bad. we need more, more, more we more. need more reminders <laughs> that like you know good old american heroes fight nazis they're not nazis because apparently we fucking forgot that nazis are bad right since you know one of the most pivotal wars in u.s history we somehow have forgotten that like the united states is supposed to hate nazis not become them Except for the thing is, none of this ever went away. Right. It just, it just went out of our life. And that's cycle. that's kind of why I brought up the whole maybe it's just my perception and all that stuff because it's it's clear now that it's not that it wasn't a problem, it's that it yeah. wasn't seen. Yeah, I was. Did I tell you about this? I was talking to one of my friends recently about you know, neo-Nazis and stuff, because when you start researching this stuff, you become, like, crazy Mm -hmm. and can only talk about this stuff. (laughs) But um, they live in Vancouver, and they were talking to me about, like, oh, you Americans fucking ruined it for the rest of us because Nazis are now marching in the streets. And I was like, nah, 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 nah. These guys have been around forever. Right, Yeah. Like it wasn't it wasn't us electing Trump that you got Nazis back. Well, and I, it was the Nazis coming back. Trump that got elected, us electing right. Trump. Right, and I think that's the thing <laughs> is that that uh, the global turn towards fascism. I I do kind of feel like it. Maybe it was like a place and time mm-hmm. that we grew up, but I do feel like we had this weird golden period where we at least weren't seeing Nazis. Yeah. I would agree with that. And and maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it was a combination of both place and time. Because we grew up in a very, you know, it's interesting listening to, again, uh, 
if you need a nice happy palate cleanser after this remedial sex ed. Uh, you know, <laughs> despite growing up in Utah in a very like uh, conservative state, we were in a very liberal bubble, both as far as living in Salt yeah. Lake City goes and especially as far as going to an alternative high school. Uh, yeah. living downtown, and our families. yeah, very liberal families living downtown or in Conwood Heights or whatever. Like, like I a hundred percent did not understand the hatred of Jews my whole life. Yeah, there's things that you just you can read about in textbooks, but still not understand because it's so far outside of your culture. And so I think there is a lot we need to acknowledge as far as like there's probably just a lot of really terrible shit that we didn't see because we had the fortunate experience of growing up in a cute little liberal fairy bubble. Yeah. Uh, white liberal bubble privilege. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, man. So this was a really heavy episode, but honestly, I have never felt more like I needed to tell a story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like of the stories that must be told, this story must be told. I would agree with that. Especially because of our climate mm-hmm. right now. Because a lot of people are like, where did these Nazis come from? And it's like, they've been here all along. And I think, you know, I think it's easy, again, as uh, as part of, I think, white privilege, right? Is when you're, unless you are in direct contact with people who are extremists and white supremacists, as a white person, for the most part, you're going to be fortunate enough to really not have to experience firsthand their impact on society. Like up until the last few years in the election of Trump and and uh, those belief systems being so prevalent in the media, uh, a lot of I think us white people were really fortunate to not really have that wasn't that did not have to be a part of our reality. That was not something we had to acknowledge. Right. You know. Right. And so. Yeah, I think that's worth recognizing that it hasn't uh, just happened. It never went away. We are just, we are I'm, just, it's. I'm sure that plenty of people of color have been aware of them right? the entire time that we were. Kind of like, no shit, Sherlock. Like, really? Yeah. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure all of the white people being like, where are all of these white supremacists coming from? All of the people of color are like, oh my God, I'm going to eat right? you. <laughs> Um, you fucking idiots. <laughs> definitely not new news, but uh, for anybody interested in this topic and who hasn't seen it already, Spike Lee is amazing. I, I think really uh, watch Black yeah, Klansman. watch Black Klansman. Yeah. Any you know, if you're interested in kind of getting a more cinematic, artistic exposure to empowerment or understanding of people of uh, people of color, any Spike Lee film is good. True, but. You know, I really, I particularly uh, enjoy Jackie Brown for that reason, because she's a woman and a person of color and kicks ass. But yeah. to, to make it relate a little bit more to this, uh, if you haven't seen The Black Klansman, go ahead and watch it. It's yeah. really fabulous and gives a lot of good insight to this issue. Yeah. Also... I am so fucking glad that we watched The Black Klansman before we started the series. Oh, yes, me too. Because it gave a really nice foundation for us, stupid white people, to understand what we were talking about. Trust, yeah. It's it's a really <laughs> good, yeah, it's a really good foundation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you're like, oh, that's the KKK. They're just mostly regular people that are really fucking racist. <laughs> All right. Follow us on social media, Palm Pitch Pod. 
uh, Instagram, Twitter, pompitchpod at Gmail. And we have a Patreon if you would like to donate to making my therapy costs after these episodes a little easier. Help us help Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's also Patreon, pompitchpod. And, uh... Yeah. Also, sorry guys. Also, I feel like I want to plug something for merch. Just like let us know what you want and what you like. And Alex and I, if you haven't picked up on it, we have kind of a coffee obsession bordering on addiction. And so coffee cups is one of the that's one of the forms of merch that we think maybe you would like too. And uh I think it's worth noting for those of you who are like interested in supporting small businesses, our our merch will be coming from like a local business that's actually owned by my friend. So, you know, I think that that's kind of a double good thing, right? You donate to our Patreon and support uh, the podcast that we hope you like. And uh, you'll also get that nice liberal snowflake feel good of supporting a local business. Hell yeah. So that's just, you know, just throwing that out there. How about, you know, donate and get some sweet merch from us? Yeah. And tell us what kind of merch you want. We'll hook you up. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, love you bye. bye love you bye. <laughs>